Rusty Quill presents. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Loyalty is one of our most frightening precepts. On its surface, an absolute dedication to ideology, a nation, or a person might seem honorable. Often, in fact, loyalty is considered the most prized of attributes one might find in a man or woman. But unless you've seen loyalty in truth, you may want to reserve your judgments on its worth. For there is no trespass which cannot be excused with loyalty. There is no line that loyalty will not let you cross. There is no limit to the cruelties loyalty may let you commit. Hello, 
My name is Tyler Bell, and you're listening to the West Side Fairy Tales, a collection of short horror and dark fiction stories written, read, and produced by me. Today's story will let us see the furthest limits to which loyalty might push us by putting us in the shoes of a soldier faced with unthinkable duties. In the last months of a war he does not yet know has all but ended, he'll be pushed to carry out orders beyond the scope of anything he's ever, even in his worst nightmares, thought could come to pass. And we'll see if those golden tethers of loyalty, so valuable and yet so easily broken, will bend him to the task at hand. But before we get to that, I'd like to make a couple recommendations. If you're new here, every episode I recommend a piece of literature I like and something random from the world of horror. Today's literary recommendation is Night by Ellie Weisel, an autobiographical account of Weisel's life as a Jew during the Holocaust. To say that this is an intense piece of writing is putting it fairly plainly. It's an extremely blunt and direct account of the horrors of that awful time but also a gripping look into the misguided attitudes that allowed such atrocities to be committed. I would say it's one of the most important pieces of literature written in the 20th century, and an absolute must-read. I'll leave a link in the description. Today's random horror recommendation is the 1997 original release of Silent Hill, a video game from Japanese developer Konami. Silent Hill is probably one of the most incredibly frightening games of all time, choosing to be unsettling and suggestive more than outright gory. Its blending of dark visuals and Lovecraftian storytelling work unbelievably well, despite the limitations of the PlayStation 1 system. And, though the controls and graphics have not aged perfectly, the reissues of the game are certainly worth a visit. The plot itself revolves around a man, Harry Mason, trying to find his little girl in the eponymous town. During his quest through foggy and inexplicably blood-stained streets, he encounters horrific nightmare creatures and the occasional odd local, all of whom are experiencing the town in slightly different ways. You absolutely should give this game a go if you're a fan of weird and creepy experiences and uh, especially... If you like horror games of any sort, the original is basically out of print at this point, but there are some versions still floating around that you can play. I'll leave a link in the description. Now, without further ado, here's today's story. The Gates of Heaven They ask me who I am. They tell me who I am. They say, I'm a hero. Being a hero is not something I aspired to. Like most good things, it was foisted upon me, heaved onto my shoulders so that I could carry the title around from place to place. Weighs on you, such a title. I woke up to it, out of a darkness more deep than you can imagine. I followed then, into a darkness like none I had experienced since. Which, of course, is why I'm here. But before that came to me, there was the darkness. A thick and clotted thing, like shaken cream. What memories do I have of the time before? I recall hills, 
yes, and the gullies between them, men doing upon each other what we're told our whole lives to avoid on pain of death. But to dodge then is the greatest injustice, eh? When your metal's tested, when the knife is out of the drawer and in another man's eye, when the world goes topsy-turvy. I never wanted to hurt anybody, but like that title, it was dropped on my shoulders. I'm, I'm rambling. I know what you want to hear. I know why I'm sitting here, what you expect of me. Many of the others, they've been a surprise to me. Some of them I never thought would talk, and in your language, much less. And here they are, chattering like magpies. Soldiers like to talk, though. You may not know it from looking at them. Rough sort. Soldiers. But they like to talk. I woke to talking. It seemed like maybe just a second had passed. I remember the flake of steel, skipping over the dirt like a stone on flat water. It came at me quickly, but my mind saw every lone second of travel. It hit Walder before me. If not for that, I'd be dead. But it did hit him, turning the front of his head into a scatter of wet flesh in the microsecond before it took me in the chest. I remember nothing else of the battle. There are others I remember. Trafalgar, of course, and Edinburgh before that. Only a little remains of the months I spent on the sun watching the earth movers tear down this wall and that until the arrondissement looked like a collection of bad teeth. And after Paris, there is little else. The shapes of memories, the ideas of them, but not the memories themselves. They called in a group of officers when I awoke. They sidled up to my bed and applauded, then pinned a medal right onto the thin fabric of my hospital gown. I asked the first one who spoke to me if I was dead, and he told me, no, I wasn't. I had survived a terrible battle. I was a hero. A hero. Such a word. I felt gray when people put it on me, thinking of the other men who'd stood beside me, who were still standing out there. They felt as flimsy as ghosts, though, after I'd woken. I couldn't remember a single name, a single face. I'd lost a lot of blood, even died a few times in surgery. That's what they told me. But I felt like, maybe, I hadn't woken up at all. My commanding officer, a man named Mansour, who I'm sure you all know, he came to visit me a few weeks after I'd woken. He had bad news about the front, about my condition. He told me I'd never fight again, and I didn't know how to feel about that. Before the war, I was a milliner's apprentice. I worked in a fancy hat shop, and I was terrible with a needle and thread. But I'd taken well to war. I'd liked fighting when I first got a taste for it. But that dulled after a while, like all tastes do. Most of my friends, my fellow soldiers, they came to the same impasse eventually, though they took different paths after arriving. I threw myself into my work, 
merely trying to be the best of what life had made of me. Others quit, forcing command to transfer them to non-combat units or, failing that, deserting outright. But some, some lost themselves to war. There are those who find a home in violence. I don't claim to understand or even sympathize with them, but it should be said that we share a deep kinship. I know how they arrive at the conclusions they do because I was asked the same question. I simply gave a different answer. Any other time in all the universe may have turned up a different result for me. But I'll get to that. Mansoor told me that, though he regretted it, I was no longer fit to serve in a combat capacity. He said it like he was telling me I died, like I was dead and hadn't quite figured it out yet. Truth be told, I feel like that often. There is no escaping it. Your name came up in a recent meeting, Mansoor told me. There was a pause, as if he expected me to speak, but when I didn't, he continued. Have you heard of Camp Beechwood? I told him I hadn't. Strange to say now, given this inquiry but most hadn't heard of it then, and I hadn't. There's a detachment there, overseeing a prison camp, political prisoners, seditionists, rabble. You were to be transferred to an advisory role there, directly beneath the camp commandant. Mansoor had a father's face, lined from constant worry, but with kind eyes. Those eyes he turned on me then, and I saw hesitation in them. Sir? I asked. Yes, he said, as though to himself. You won't be responsible, really, for any of the goings-on in the camp. Men have heard what you've done throughout the Empire and further. You'll be more of a... Well, he laughed. A mascot, I'd guess you'd say. Aye, sir, I said, nodding. I had. No idea what he meant. He told me, of course, going into great detail about my duties and what would be expected of me. He could have told me I was going to put on ladies' undergarments and shovel shit from the latrines, and I would have given him the same answer. Shadows of men passed by the faded blue curtain that sequestered my quarters. Just a bed and a table, really, from the ward proper. It was the third ward I'd been moved to since waking and the smallest, fitting just thirty beds. It had been a high school once, this place, but those days were long gone. Years of fighting had left holes in every wall. Most leaked cold air, promising a harshness to the approaching winter. In certain places you could see five hundred meters clear from the back wall to the front door. The man you'll be working for, Brindle, Mansour said. He's a premier conscript a ranking party member, commissioned due to the necessities of the war. I'm familiar, sir. Yes, well. Mansour cleared his throat. He's a dedicated man. Absolutely loyal. The look Mansour gave me told me all I needed to know. This man, Brendel, was not the type to relax around. But I didn't relax so there would be no problem. 
Understood, sir, I said. You'll no longer be under my command, Mansour said. There's still a war to fight. I will take you with me. God knows I've tried to arrange for you to return to the front, even if only as a cartographer, but... Mansour straightened up and looked around the room. Your story has captured hearts and minds. In this beleaguered country, you can't be risked. Those are orders from the man himself. Mansour leveled his eyes one last time, putting on his uniform cap and adjusting it with both hands. The gesture seemed involuntary. Stay the course, son, he said. That's all I can leave you with. Twelve days later, I hobbled through the gates of Camp Beechwood. They were simple wood and steel constructions. Cheap-looking, if anything, though I didn't expect much from a prison camp. Fortifications on the front were built into the heart of the very earth, sometimes even six or seven floors deep. The place before me seemed temporary, an afterthought. A boy in a man's uniform picked me up. He gave his name as Private Arnold, and his age is sixteen. We had begun allowing children into the ranks at that point though, thankfully, only in rear-guard roles. The enemy, uh, if you'll excuse me, had begun the practice first as a necessity, and I'd always found it barbaric. But here I was, finding out my own too could stoop to such barbarisms. Arnold carried himself well for a child. His every moment seemed curbed to a cadence, as though he were always hearing a march called in his head. When I asked him questions, no matter how trivial, I saw in the space behind his eyes that he was considering not the answer, but how to present the answer professionally. He strived ever to be the good soldier. He told me more about myself and the drive from the airport and passing than I already knew. In just a few short months, my entire life had become a household item, cleaned and clarified and retold until it sounded like the life of another man, a better, more courageous man than I'd ever been, for sure. It hurt to see the zeal that burned in young Arnold's eyes when he spoke to me. I was something he wanted to become, warts and all. He knew how badly I'd been hurt. The whole of the Empire did, apparently. Despite that, he still wanted to follow the exact path I'd followed, infantry service and a spot in a front-line trench. I didn't bother trying to dissuade him. If what I'd heard about the conditions along the front were true, it would find him soon enough. Thunder rocked the ground beneath our vehicle. I gripped the door and looked around for some sign of explosives, witchcraft, whatever, and found nothing but a large cloud of dust growing beyond the far end of the fence to our left. It grew in time with the thunder and in seconds I could make out shapes of thousands of gaunt men and women in shabby gray prison uniforms, sprinting in file like cadets. What the hell? I asked. The daily run, sir, Arnold said. He gave something of a warm grin and turned back to the dust cloud. I could now see the wide, grassless rut running along the perimeter fence like a moat. Military logic might suggest the strip of brown earth was the same no-man's land riddled with mines that surrounded every base. 
but this was a prison camp, I reminded myself. The formation of prisoners passed our vehicle, not a single head daring turn as they moved. Guards in the towers along the perimeter fence tracked the formation with their rifles, eyes on scopes and fingers on triggers. The crowd passed beneath a hundred watchful glass eyes and then out of view. I followed the trail of dust with my eyes, watching it fall to ruin beneath itself, as though it never was. In the distance I could hear them, still pounding the earth. My bags were deposited inside a repurposed chalet the base had been built around. Officers' quarters, I was told, before Arnold led me to a plush room on the second floor. Some of the former occupants' belongings remained, but nothing of any great importance. A shaving mirror, reading glasses, a copy of Common Leeds' Book of Counted Sorrows lay on the shelf over the bed. I remanded that to the waste bin without removing my gloves. Rumbling in the floor rattled the bin onto its metal rim, and I looked outside to find the runners in formation. Out of motion, they were a sick and sorry lot. Most suffered the worst sort of malnourishment, their eyes made insectile by sunken sockets. Their leader dispersed them, and they trundled away to the rows of brown wooden barracks houses that made up that entire side of the camp. A second row of wire rimmed its perimeter, a waist-high reminder of where not to tread. Arnold called me downstairs a moment later, and I met Brindle. He was a tan, reedy man, with a well-developed chest I now saw streaked with sweat. I recognized his red trousers as belonging to the pacemaker for the running formation. Clear, blue eyes looked at me over top high cheekbones and a dense red mustache. He smiled and outstretched his hands introducing himself as Marcus. I've seen considerable propaganda in the years since the war ended. Brindle was not featured in most of it, but some, yes. And I feel I must say that I find it a strange bit of social psychology that artists and writers depict him now as a sallow and bug-eyed individual, a gaunt madman of distorted, inhuman proportions as if to somehow discredit him by mockery of a false physique. Reality held him as a specimen of a man, hardy, well-formed. Though it may not be my place to say, I must remark that I find it odd how quick your survivors are to paint him as some sort of spiritual invalid, a creature broken from birth and further deformed by a life lived in support of an ugly cause. I won't stray you from your opinions of Brindle, you have every right to them. But there is a narrative put in place that suggests a man like Brindle is born, and not made. And I have never seen evidence of that. In my time on the battlefield or since, not once, not ever. Brindle took me on an uneventful tour of the facilities. Conditions were poor, but I had little context with which to judge. War had waged, in some form or another, for going on ten years. Many of our neighbors had grown fat selling corn to our fieldless farmers in that time. A friend of mine once remarked that he'd have been able to retire if he'd manned his farm a year longer into the war and held on to just half of what he'd grown for a year after that. We avoided the barracks. 
The stench of the place fouled the air, more so even than the row of enlisted latrines at the far end of the base. Brindle made offhanded remarks about the prisoners' foppish natures and how they responded poorly to responsibility and worse to any sort of work. That, he added, was why he ran them every afternoon, to keep them invigorated. Brindle was a stern proponent of physical betterment. I could spend an hour listing the physical feats he'd aspired to in the time before his military service. He was a special conscript, as I'd said, and he'd worn a dozen uniforms before this last. As a footballer, a mountain climber, he even did the continental sprint on a refitted ten-speed as a bet. He liked to show off the scar a snapped chain had left on his leg. We finished the day at dinner with the other officers, nondescript men of little note, in the dining room of the chalet. There was also a large fireplace which provided the only light. Electrical lights turned out at dusk as a precaution against air raids. One of the prisoners, a boy of maybe twelve, served us. He wore his prison uniform, though it was far cleaner than the others I'd seen. Brenda would later tell me he kept this boy and a few others in the house for just such work. Serving was beneath the duties of foot soldiers, and the older prisoners couldn't be trusted. They were all degenerates, he said, though their worst vices didn't appear until after puberty. Despite his clean clothes, the boy looked haggard. His face had that ubiquitous sunken appearance, and his blue eyes a pale cast more befitting a corpse. He dropped a cup onto the table in a slow sort of dance. There was no movement of imbalance or clumsiness on his part. His slender wrist simply gave under the weight of the filled ceramic, and the heavy thing clattered to the table. It didn't even spill, merely dropped flat onto its bottom. The closest officer inspected his sleeve, saw nothing, and returned his attention to Brindle's story of how the chain had broken and cut his leg. But Brindle had stopped talking to look at the boy. He sighed and stood, and the boy quickly turned to leave. As I was saying, Brindle continued, unstrapping his belt and pushing the boy down onto the ground with his foot. The boy crumpled onto his knees as the first lash smacked over his shoulders. He whimpered, but did not cry out. I was near the back of the pack, ill-prepared and utterly without a chance of winning. Some of the other officers flinched in time with the strokes, but none of them interrupted their meals to intercede or even comment on the matter. I followed suit. But there was this native francophone who'd given me this look. You know, when I was stopped in Ardennes at the end of the last leg. He struck the boy over his legs and buttocks with his foot planted square between the boy's shoulder blades. The child's fists were clenched into tiny, pale balls. I don't know if it was a slight, but I took it as one. He had this air about him that I just despised, so I endeavored to beat him, pushing myself up this, well this mountain with everything I had. He finished on the boy after ten strokes, then tapped him on the hip and gestured for him to run off to the kitchen. The boy did, not daring to wipe the tears off his face until he was well out of sight. But I got too ahead of myself, Brindle said. 
His breath was only slightly raised from the beating he'd administered. The bike couldn't handle all my effort and the chain snapped, with a sound like you'd never heard. It sort of flipped back to wrap around my leg, and it was actually the downstroke of my right foot that pulled the chain down through my skin. The cut was really quite terrible. He made to lift his leg onto the table, and then smiled and put it down. I won't put you off your dinners. I had drinks with him in his rooms later and managed to ask him about the incident with the boy. Brindle nodded sagely and spoke. That one's name is Burgess, he said. His father's one of what you might call the head prisoners in camp. In charge of nothing but hearts and minds, of course. I think he might be planning a rebellion. They do that, you know. Plan rebellions and coups, and takeovers. But all of his planning now must contend with the presence of his son in my quarters, and all the other boys down there are held for similar reasons. But why lash him so violently? I asked. Did it put you off? He asked. I shrugged, and seeing his look, nodded. As it should. Savagery isn't meant to be pleasant. I think a man who finds it so mustn't be much of a man at all. I've never known war like you, and you've never known war like me. At the front, you have a way of doing things that doesn't fit here. I've had men brought here who approach violence in a way I find distasteful, if only because they developed their tastes under a different command. He cleared his throat and looked at me. It must be said that I mean no disrespect to our men on the front lines, he said. But I believe even a hero, such as yourself, understands that what happens there must absolutely be left there, lest it spread like a cancer through everything. He set his drink down and looked at me more deeply, trying to find something behind my eyes. That boy spilled a drink two months ago, and was lashed for it. Twice, he said. That was right into the lap of one of my officers. A mistake, sure. But it merited justice that I let the man offended deliver. I said not to let it happen again. He rubbed his mustache between his fingers. Today it nearly happened again. Did he spill? No. But I do not allow second mistakes. That creates a trend. A chance for him to see how much further he can push it. Brindle poured himself another drink. Today's faux pas is tomorrow's insurrection, he said. Control is tantamount above all else. There are only two punishments in my camp. You are lashed or you are shot. Anything else is a half measure. If to only encroach on that second spill is ten lashes, then the boy understands the extent of my resolve. 
Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. It was not long before I saw Brindle's resolve tested. The resolve of every soul in the facility, really. A camp near the front, similar to ours, collapsed under the weight of enemy onslaught and all its problems were transferred to us. Its prisoners, its lack of equipment and resources. But none of the men. Our overcrowded prison was now facing starvation in days rather than months. And so Brindle acted. There was a run in that first hour after the new prisoners arrived. They were herded to the gates on foot, haggard from marching however many hundreds of miles over the past month. I believe I was the only man on that base who did not expect what came after the run began. 
My simple mind was still grappling with the possible answers to the lack of food, of water, of medical resources and billets and latrines. I was still pondering these like a fool when I heard the first gunshot. My mind connected it to a starter pistol, as though this were a real race instead of one of Brindle's mad runs. But when I looked, I found one of the new prisoners, an emaciated old man with no shirt, crawling in the dirt. One of the guards on the ground by the gate nodded to the nearest tower, pulled his sidearm, and executed the man on the spot. The suddenness of it startled me. It was no great logical leap to realize the man had fallen behind during the run. There was screaming now, but only from the new prisoners. The veterans of this place knew not to waste their breath. The gunshots grew like a storm. I saw smoke pouring into the air, tower by tower, and men, women, and children falling to the ground as they fell behind the pack. Two guardsmen with red flags stood by the camp gate, steadily clicking off numbers as the prisoners ran by for a second lap. Brindle ran ahead of the pack, a mad grin on his face as he raced through the dead bodies his game had left in his path. I cannot even say I was dumbfounded. I was beyond any earthly feeling watching this insanity. A part of me that had never spoken before told me how happy I would have been to have never woken up in the hospital. The guardsmen waved their flags after the next lap, and the gunfire ceased. What sort of mad hell was that? I asked Brindle as he strode away from the pack. I believe some part of me wanted to sound angry, but I only managed to be confused. There was a shortage of supplies in camp, Brindle said, and only so much work to be done. He took a towel from a guardsman and dabbed the sweat off his body. Now there are both work and supplies in plenty. He smiled. The only other options are to starve them to death or let them go. If you think of a better plan, I'll gladly hear it, but this is the most fair solution I could dream up. I looked over the river of death surrounding the camp. It nauseated me. I had never seen such a thing in my life. Not on the front. Not in my worst nightmares. Worst of all, I could see the ugly logic behind it, and I couldn't think of a better way. I watched the living pick amongst the dead, most of them too broken for sorrow, all save one boy, who might have been the brother of the kitchen boy. I don't know what snapped in his mind, or who it was he had in his hands when his eyes met mine. He turned to the dead man on the ground and whispered something nobody could hear. Then he grabbed a rock the size of a melon and ran at us with it. Brindle gave me a surprised look. Can you do something about that? He asked. I drew my pistol and turned to the child, who was maybe fifty yards away and couldn't even crush a sparrow's egg with the strength remaining in his body. I told him to stop, screamed at him, but he did not. It took maybe ten seconds of yelling before he'd drawn too close for me to risk it. Risk what? I don't know. 
the respect of the other men, I suppose. I could have downed him with a raised foot, tripped him, slapped him. The boy posed no threat to me or anybody in all the world. If I had been fast asleep, he could not have killed me with that rock. Still, I shot him in his little bird's chest, and he crumpled with a pained look on his face. There was confusion, too, as though someone so young could not believe such a short life had already ended. No matter how long I live, I know I will never wear such a look. I don't suppose he'll ever spill another drink, Brindle said glumly, sighing and handing the towel back to the guardsman. A lone crow lit the wire over top the gate. Not the brother, then, I thought. Not the brother. The boy stayed with me, and the memory of the preceding violence, as though it had stained my skin, Brindle had me oversee the destruction of the bodies in a series of fuel-filled trenches at the base of the hill behind the camp. I could not meet the eyes of the prisoners. I had no words. There was no recourse to their suffering. I watched flesh slough off the dead, understanding I was well and truly trapped in this place. I had hated the men who might become these prisoners when they lived opposite me on the battlefield. Hate is healthy in that environment, like pain and thirst and fear. It keeps you alive. It keeps you searching for the next move, expecting the next attack, envisioning the next victory, preparing for the next horrific loss. I could not have wished this on these men and women, these children. I could not have wished this hell on anybody once faced with its realities but I thought that maybe I had sometimes, sitting out there in the trenches. We had a cavalier attitude toward death on the front line, and in the training preceding it. I feared now, smoke from the burning dead warming my face, that I had asked this of God in some moment of weakness, and the survival of I and my country had been placed in the hands of the devil in punishment. I walked the walls at night. Volunteering for the night shift was an easy solution to having to suffer the pained faces of the prisoners during the day. At night, I was a shadow amongst shadows, free in a place without freedom, permitted to walk wherever. So I found myself tracing the wire walls of the compound, climbing the towers and trading cigarettes with the men. Tower One stood beside the main gate and it was there that I saw the first shadow. We've been having problems with these crows, said the private on duty. His name escapes me. He'd been pointing to where the birds liked to sit on the wire. The posts beside the gate were old, and would sag from the weight of the birds during the day. But my eyes were on the grounds. Something moved down there in the center road that divided the general quarters from the prison barracks. The private stopped talking as I turned my attention away from him. The shape seemed to be a small boy in silhouette, standing with his arms slack at his side. He was barely visible, but I could see from his posture that he was looking at me. I held my hand to the private. 
Your flashlight, I said. He obeyed immediately, and I shone the beam down at the dirt. The glare of the light blinded me. My eyes adjusted. Nothing. I swept the light back and forth. Shadows danced, but none of them belonged to any child of flesh. Sir, there's a strict lights-out order, the private said. He sounded worried. I doused the thing and handed it back to him. I know, I replied. The night was far darker now. I could see nothing of the private's face. It was a black void beneath the moonlight shining on his helmet. I thought I saw something, but I was wrong. I looked again and saw nothing but the pale blanket of stars sitting high and free above all this darkness. Trucks came and went in the waking hours of the world, dropping load after load of new prisoners at our gate. I hid in my room, sleeping through the day like a ghoul, crushing my pillows over my ears to block out the thunder of pounding feet and gunshots. Snow fell outside my window on the second day of my third month at the camp. Reports given by Brindle's chief of staff suggested our mean prisoner population had only dropped by a total of one person in that time. Brindle sought me out during a night patrol. This isn't necessary, you know, he said. I gave him the proper greeting and he shushed me with a raised hand. You don't need to patrol at night. They aren't going anywhere. The only thing more resolute than our men here are these gates and walls. He cocked his head to the side. Is something bothering you? The runs, I said without hesitation. My voice cracked. The nature of this place, sir. I am shaken by it. Brindle laid a kind hand on my shoulder. Then we'll transfer you away, he said, meeting my eyes, as soon as that's possible. I am sorry this has affected you so. Given your duty on the front, he let the thought trail off, then let go of my shoulder and looked over the prison barracks. I knew a man in Belvedere, where I grew up. He raised and slaughtered pigs, talked tough about his trade, but it was well known he couldn't harvest his crop without a visit to the liquor store first. Brindle smiled and let his eyes fall to the ground. His son, he continued, lacked the stomach for even that and went into politics. I opened my mouth to speak, but my breath caught in my chest. A group of prisoners were standing in the shadows beneath the nearest set of barracks. Moonlight reflected off the snow to shine in their eyes. But apples don't fall far from apple trees. Brendel saw my face and turned to find what I was looking at. Do you see those prisoners, sir? I asked. The group remained stock still a menagerie of men and women. I could see no fine details, but the shreds of clothing hanging off their bodies were plainly obvious. Brindle's head snapped around and he brought out a flashlight, shining it between the barracks. Nothing. The forms of the people I thought I'd seen burst apart like so much smoke. Where? Brindle said, 
I cleared my throat, looking at the empty pathway where he'd focused his light. Must have been a trick of the light, I said. Traces of what smelled like a diesel fire found my nose. Brindle smelled it too, raising his nose to the wind. He shook his head and stowed his flashlight. Those burn pits need to be filled and covered over, he remarked to himself. He started walking back to the repurposed chalet, something clearly on his mind. Sir? I asked. He stopped and turned. Moonlight found his face and I could see that he'd lost weight since I'd last spoken to him only a week before. Even this frail illumination showed the deepening lines in the skin around his eyes. How they cupped to hold shadow. A transfer, he said. That's probably best. Get you out of here. He looked around and then waved a hand over his head. Dismissed. Carry on. I acknowledged the command and turned back to the alley. The shadows had returned. There were a few more now that I could see. I wanted to turn back to Brindle to ask him not to leave me alone, but that would have been foolish. These were hallucinations, of course. Whatever transfer I got after admitting I'd lost my mind wouldn't be to the sort of place I'd have liked to retire. The shadows did nothing to menace me, simply stood and held me in their regard. In the distance I could hear the sound of crows telling each other riddles. I whispered under my breath, to them as much as to myself, that they did not exist. They didn't react to the assertion. I took several steps backward, not wanting to take my eyes off the things, but desperately wanting to be quit of them. A wash of cold like falling into ice water came over me, a feeling so extreme I gasped. I backpedaled to get away from it, and darkness blinded me. I could feel it against my skin, pressing over every inch of me like water. I fell then, the strength fleeing my legs as though I'd run a thousand miles. It was hot and dusty, the summer sun sucking every drop of water from my mouth. I had fallen, and I knew what that meant even as the glass eye of the rifle flickered at the top of the tower. It flashed, and I clutched my heart, fading and fading and fading. I gasped and rolled to my feet, swinging my arms wildly at shapes I couldn't see. There were dozens of them here, hundreds, thousands. I felt a rattling in my chest the thunder of footfalls and gunshots. Then I was alone, standing like an idiot, crouched over with my hands flailing wildly into the empty night. Did the others see the shadows? I don't know. I think it's not a thing for me to know, nor is it particularly cogent to this confession. You may or may not believe this thing happened to me, but given your gods and how you worship them, I think that perhaps you do. Perhaps you know better what happened to me than I do. Perhaps. Days later, the first convoy of trucks, soldiers instead of prisoners, came to the camp. The lieutenant in charge of them spoke nervously, his uniform almost completely unpresentable. Brindle met them at the gate around midnight 
shortly after they arrived. He offered the lieutenant what lodging we could afford, but the man didn't seem to want to linger. He nervously eyed the dozens of crows resting atop the front gate. The lieutenant settled on fuel and food, and they left within the hour. Rumors spread around the camp after that. The front had moved closer, too close for comfort. The prisoners seemed more energetic and gave us daring glances where once they would have only dropped their eyes. Brindle confirmed my suspicions a few days later. The war was ending, and unfavorably for our lot. There is a full retreat in effect, he said, looking out over the camp. The daily runs had continued unabated. They still woke me, though now I sometimes woke to a room cluttered with the shadows of men. I ignored them and slept, tried to sleep. We will be receiving orders from somebody soon, I think. He cleared his throat and paced. He'd found me again near the barracks. It has been some time since orders on the radio came from the same voice twice. This is not good. He smiled and put his hand on my shoulder. Desperation shone in his eyes. His face was wan and sallow, almost entirely devoid of fat. In a few more weeks, he might look no different than the prisoners. Perhaps if he skipped bathing for a day or let his uniform fall even slightly out of repair, he would. We must carry on, he said, nodding. He seemed to see something over my shoulder and frowned. Then he turned and left quickly. We received the order to liquidate the camp a week after that. The voice on the radio told Brindle he would receive no new orders via radio and that he should march his troops north after he finished. I and the other officers had sat in the back of the office as he received the order, the final order from high command. I hadn't been awake during the day in some time now, and I found the lighted world a strange and alien place. The men, all the men on the base, seemed tired and hollowed out. Suspicious eyes glared beneath every helmet. The prisoners watched us from the spaces between their barracks, anxiously awaiting what we would do now that we knew we'd lost the war. Do they know we have lost? I wondered. Reports showed that several men, nearly half our number, had fled or otherwise deserted in the night over the past several weeks. Had I seen them go? Perhaps. I was, after all, the ranking officer on patrol every night. But I saw many things in the dark by then, and I didn't have time for all of them. Even now, I only had eyes for the tens of thousands of crows resting on the wire walls of the camp. Wires had snapped in several places, and I could see support poles sagging here and there. The prisoners and the men eyed the gaps in the fence nervously. Brindle appeared outside around noon, shirtless, body steaming as though he'd just stepped out of a hot shower. His eyes were round and empty, almost perfectly mad.
as the smile splitting the lower half of his face. Prepare for a run, he said. The men assembled the prisoners and Brindle addressed them through a bullhorn. There will be a final run today to test the vigor of you remaining prisoners. This camp is to be liquidated along with all assets as of sundown today. Following this, all personnel will march north for rendezvous with a larger unit near the capital. The prisoners and the men exchanged glances. The short speech left much for interpretation, said much of what we had all been thinking for months now. The war was over, for me and mine, but we would not release our grip on the prisoners. Our mission died only with us. Until then, our orders stood. Death, in a word. Any prisoner who falls behind in this run will be deemed unfit for the journey, Brendel said. I need not express what that might mean for you. Further, anyone who can pass me before the end of four laps will be given leave to go. Many of the men cleared their throats and exchanged glances. Brindle turned to them. No matter the outcomes of this exercise, all gathered personnel will obey that order. His eyes fell on me and he repeated himself. No matter the outcomes. Brindle motioned for me to walk along with him to the gates. I had not set foot beyond them since my transfer. The air smelled cleaner here, though you couldn't avoid the stench of the burn pits. It was only in the coming months that I found the smell had seeped into my skin. Brindle took a rifle from the gate guard and pressed it into my hands. His eyes were like worn driftwood. If they get too close to me, you know what to do, he said. I nodded. He sighed. Spring is a long way off and this winter was cold. But the capital will be beautiful this year. It's always beautiful after a hard winter. Sir? I asked. The gate guard stood silent beside us, face cloaked in shadow. My face would be like his, I knew, anonymous but for the shadow of my helmet, a figure only passingly human for its shape, but as ageless, and unknowable as the sea itself. A soldier in form. Brendel put his hand on my shoulder and squeezed. I'll return to you shortly, he said with a smile. Then he left to lead the formation. He raised his hand, and they were off, thundering past me. In seconds they were past the edge of the camp and gone from sight. I watched the noise of their motion as they passed through the cloud of black smoke that marked the burn pits. The weight of the air they pushed aside blew it to pieces. They brought the stench of that place with them as they began the second lap. Brendel had pulled out ahead of the group, with a lone boy following close behind him. The others kept with the pack, none having fallen behind, even though their faces strained with the effort of keeping pace. Black mud stained their feet and legs, 
and it seemed a cloud of crematory smoke had followed them from the burn pits. Brindle's eyes met mine only briefly. I don't know what I saw in there, in truth. A mixture of madness and sorrow and fear, I think. Hope as well. Above every small emotion was the face of a contender, an athlete who would not cede ground for any reason. The boy behind him, nameless, emaciated, wore the same expression. He ran like death himself, not willing to be cheated of a soul. Smoke covered the runners more heavily on the second pass. It fell like funerary silks over the shoulders of the prisoners, flitting in the breeze, never quite dispersing. The birds that had sunk the wire walls of the prison camp over the previous months took flight. They fell in amongst the prisoners, vanished into the fluttering dark. The third pass. Brindle's teeth were dead set, eyes wide and focused on some point beyond anything mortal man can see. The streaming smoke hung from him now, too, dancing blackly amongst the steam pouring off his skin. The boy was gaining on him, but Brindle would not cede the lead to him. I heard the first crack of gunfire and turned to see a man fall to the ground. But there was no man there, merely a thick cloud of oily smoke dissipating on the ground. Then the walls were ringing with gunfire. Some runners held their hands over their heads, but none of them faltered in their pace. Black forms slipped behind the pack over and over again, lurching and shaking as the bullets tore them to pieces. But there was no blood, no bodies, merely smoke, thick and black, that rested in depressions in the ground like oil. Soon, calls of empty came from every position along the wall. Men yelled for more ammunition. I had not fired a single shot. I thought that perhaps I should, but I did not, and I do not know why. I could see the boy's fingers nearly brushing Brindle's trousers on the fourth pass. More gunfire resounded, and still not a single drop of blood, not a single human body fell to the ground. One of our men screamed and threw his rifle to the ground. Then he ran for the woods. Nobody stopped him. Others followed suit. Brindle turned the corner of the prison for the last lap, and I saw the boy swiping at his back. Only the effort of raising his hand slowed him enough to let Brindle remain in the lead. Exhaustion drew Brindle's face back into a rictus. His chest smoked black and white in the soft evening light. And behind him, the crowd had seemingly grown to thousands. I raised my rifle, seeing that the boy had nearly caught Brindle. Brindle would have crossed the finish line ahead of all of them. If I hadn't pulled the trigger. The bullet took him in the chest, directly in the heart. For a moment, he hung in exhilaration, face soft and wondrous, eyes heavenward beneath outstretched arms. Then the boy's hand met his back and he fell, face down, into the snow. The boy ran past him only a few more steps and then raised his hands to the sky, 
screaming with fists raised. Tears blotted his eyes. A similar exaltation passed through the crowd, and I saw the great columns of black smoke over the burn pits bow earthward. They prostrated themselves over the camp, touching their hazy heads to the main gate, where I stood just yards away from Brindle's corpse. Figures formed in that haze and then blew forward, tearing over me like the explosion that had buried a flake of steel three inches into my chest. I covered my eyes and leaned into it to keep from falling. Even squinting, I could see thousands of hands, black and white, stretching down to touch Brindle's body. His skin blackened and cracked, and after a time the hands had passed and there was nothing left of him. I stood alone in the black sludge the run had made of the space before the gate. Fog-like might accompany a night of heavy drinking faded from my mind, and I could see I was almost completely alone. The camp sat before me, sunken and lonely, and suffused with that dreamy sort of blue that falls over everything during winter in the mountains. The soldiers had fled. Many of the barracks had fallen into ruin. Smoke no longer rose from the burn pits, though I could smell it. I will always be able to smell it. There was only the boy left beside me, and a woman I believe was his mother. The boy was nearly too weak to walk bowed over and taking ragged breaths with his face to the ground. She rubbed his back gently and looked at me with a mix of confusion and disgust. Relief as well. The way any man or woman might look at a rampaging bear that has been shot so they might live. They recovered and she led the boy away, but not before grabbing me roughly by the chin. I let this happen, would have let this happen even if I'd retained the strength to push her away. She pulled me down and kissed me gently on the cheek, then whispered a phrase in your language that I did not know at the time. Then they left, and I was alone. I sat four days outside the gates to the camp. I ate and drank nothing but clean snow I pulled from the trees. I slept beside the front gate shivering myself to sleep and often hoping I would not wake. But wake I did. Your people found me on that seventh day. I stood like a man and surrendered my pistol to a sad-eyed corporal with a red mustache. He told me in no uncertain terms that his men didn't really understand they'd won the war until they'd seen my surrender. Seen what was left of me. I expected they'd kill me. I was wrong. I expected they'd torture me. I was wrong. I expected they'd parade me, humiliate me, leave me to wither to nothing in a cell somewhere. I was wrong. I have lived in a series of comfortable prisons since, well fed and often given leave to walk the grounds. I found in time that everything I thought I knew about my country, our cause, was wrong, even if I hadn't already expected that. 
many of the men I served with were captured, and by their testimony, your courts saw fit to release me. I denied your clemency, not just because I don't deserve it, but because I have nowhere to go. I am a dog without a home, a soldier who lost his cause and his nerve. Though whether I lost that nerve before or after it was needed most, I will never know. There is forgiveness for what I've done. I will not allow it for myself. The woman at the gate bent down and kissed me, and in the tongue of my sworn enemy she told me, You are a hero. And so I am. And so I am. And so I am. Well, that was uh, Gates of Heaven. What do you think? Have you ever been stuck in a situation where you had to do the wrong thing for loyalty's sake? Have you ever committed atrocities in the name of some lofty ideal? Let me know in the West Side Fairy Tales discussion group, which we call the West Side Fairy Tales Horror and Lit Club, on Facebook. We have a regular page there under West Side Fairy Tales, but the Horror and Lit Club is a great place to talk with other fans about the episodes, the recommendations, and even start up your own conversations about horror and writing and whatever else comes to mind. You can also send me a message personally at westsidefairytales at gmail.com or hop on Twitter at WSFairyTales or Instagram at westsidefairytales. If you like the show, please take a minute to rate and review us on iTunes. I read literally every comment and it's a great way to help us rise to the ratings. We've been growing quite a bit lately but we still have a long way to go and that minute or so you spend on iTunes could really make the difference. If you really like the show and just want to send us some cash, then uh, hop on over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash westsidefairytales. We have tons of additional content for you to access there, basically upping your Westside Fairy Tales intake to four audio programs per month at the $5 level. For just a buck, you get early access to the regular show and access to update audio where I ramble and try to get you to laugh. You'll also get early access to the Westside Fairy Tales Horror and Lit Club audio cast where I go in-depth on the month's book and uh, random horror recommendations. If you're feeling real dedicated, you can even jump up to $10 and get merch and super early access to raw versions of the show, which can be released up to two weeks before the regular episode drops. and. There's tons more I haven't gone into. So go head on over to patreon.com slash westsidefairytales and see what we've got in store for you today. Next month, we're going to bring you the first part of a massive four-part story that might be one of the most lore-heavy in the Westside Fairy Tales. For those of you who've been paying attention and those of you who've already dug through the West Side Fairy Tales back catalog looking for clues that connect the episodes, this is going to be where your diligence pays off. To a degree, at least. Though I already suspect that by the end, you'll find yourself with more new questions than answers. All that aside, join me for the beginning of a story about a young person's journey across the United States and the odd souls she finds in her path. In part one of 
Tota Americana. And until then, as always, stay safe out there. Westside Fairy Tales is written, read, scored, and produced by Tyler Bell. Episode artwork by Yui Breedlove. All content here in copyright 2019, Tyler Bell. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Something's not quite right in the quiet mountain town of Targrady, West Virginia. Months after a local teen was lynched in the dead of a hot summer night, two men stand charged with murder in what the majority opinion considers to be an open and shut case. But Adelaide Stevenson, a young crime reporter from Charleston, is finding out the smallest cracks in the official narrative run far far deeper than she could have ever expected. Join Adelaide and West by God as she navigates small-town secrets, the dubious ethics of her own profession, and the dark whispers of an ancient creature, known to some as the Witcham Woman, who prowls the shadowed hollers that lie between night and nightmare. Sent on overnight assignment to cover the start of the trial, Adelaide quickly realizes the story she's been told, and been telling, doesn't make sense. Cryptic assertions of a concrete alibi are emailed to her by the family of the accused. Nobody in town seems comfortable discussing the basic facts of the case, and the murder she's been writing about wasn't the only tragic death this summer. Adelaide extends her stay against the wishes of her editor, and her investigations take a complicated and dangerous turn as she discovers the true depths of the mysteries surrounding Targrady. The only real evidence from the night of the murder may lie in the hands of a notorious local crime family led by an enigmatic woman known as the Fetid Queen, 
Local authorities seem to grow more hostile by the hour, and even Adelaide's own career might not survive this assignment. Featuring an eclectic cast of characters ranging from violent and horrifying to outlandish and fabulous, West by God is a must-read novel for anybody who enjoys Twin Peaks, Stephen King, and all the creepy places you find just off the path in the woods. It is the debut novel of Tyler Bell, a USMC infantry combat veteran, former crime and courts reporter for the Charleston Daily Mail, and creator of the award-winning West Side Fairy Tales horror and dark fiction podcast. Due for release by Henlo Press in October of 2023. Learn more at westsidefairytales.com slash westbygod.